everyone, to another edition of the Sports Medicine Podcast, a weekly podcast. Yours truly, excuse me, I'm sorry. In three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Sports Medicine Update weekly podcast. Yours truly, Jerry Riles, and the honorable, the fantastic, the outstanding, Dr. Chad Padroma. Doc, how are you? Doing great, Jerry. How about you? I'm doing fantastic and uh, enjoying the weather as, as, as much as I can and as long as we can because as you well know, here in the Midwest, just outside the greatest city in the world, and of course Chicago, Illinois, when the weather turns, it turns. And from one minute to the other, from one day to the other, from one week to the other, you never know what type of season you're going to experience here in the great city of Chicago and the surrounding area. So I'm taking advantage of this and enjoying this beautiful uh, summer-like temperatures that we're experiencing over the past few weeks, uh, past few days, and the next couple of days, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's probably going to be a terrible winter because it's certainly been a beautiful summer and fall. <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 it comes with the territory, right? Yeah, that's right. Just gotta, yeah, there, gotta you know, it. and as far as the sports world is concerned, there's a lot to come with the territory as well, and we know that as of this podcast, that uh, it's down to the the finals in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, that, of course, the uh, Los Angeles Lakers led by LeBron James. And, of course, your favorite, one of your teams, your guys, uh, the Miami Heat, were led by Jimmy Butler, former Chicago Bull, former Chicago Minnesota Timberwolves, and, of course, former Chicago Philadelphia 76ers. Now, actually, opportunity to, uh, very slim, though, but an opportunity to possibly get his first ring first of all i gotta say kudos to you congratulations to you and the wisdom that you share not only in sports medicine but in sports in general is off the charts because you told me keep an eye on this kid jimmy jimmy butler he is the cream of the crop gotten this team to play outstanding and despite the fact that their backs are against the wall Jimmy Butler has made a major impact as far as these NBA finals are concerned. And my hat is off to you. And I was this close. <laughs> Miami Heat jersey with the name Jimmy Butler on the back. So, sir, thank you so very much. And uh, we'll see what unfolds between this podcast and, of course, the next following days. You know, I've never met him. He doesn't know who I am. But I have and have for a while had terrific admiration for him just on all fronts as a player character whatnot so i'm i'm glad to see him getting rewarded with the trip to the finals now there's a uh, they've been plagued with some injuries and we know the performance of jimmy butler in uh, game three i believe where he single-handedly willed his team to victory over uh, lebron james and uh, and uh, anthony davis uh to, to get that one victory but uh on the injury front their star guard is is out and, and, and nursing a foot injury. And, of course, we know what uh, the, uh, the, the Robin to the Batman of Jimmy Butler, Bam, uh, just came back, not effective. But talk about the injury situation regarding the Miami Heat and, and what this has done to the players and, of course, this team and the series. Yeah, they're interesting you know, from a sports medicine perspective, too, because as I think everybody knows now, even more than before, they have, you know, obviously, I don't know what every team does, but by all accounts, 
one of the most intense, probably the most intense conditioning regimen in the NBA, maybe in all of sports. Uh, they weigh athletes. They measure body fat regularly. Um, they keep people out if they can't um, perform. And it comes to pass. You know, I don't think people realize, but in that, that game that um, early in the series, the three best players are Jimmy Butler, Bam Abadio, and, and, uh, um, and Goran Dragic. Um, and actually, so Bam was out and he came back. And talk about Goran in a minute. But Jimmy Butler rolled his ankle in a pretty bad way in that game. But he came back, never complained. And my goodness, you know, what he's done, not less than, you know, not 100% himself, I think is amazing. But as they say, and as his coach, Eric Spolstra said, he said he's in the top 1% uh, conditioning, you know, in the whole um, uh, the whole NBA. So it just goes to show you um, the rewards that come to people that really take care of themselves. Um, Goran Dragic, it's, you know, and I don't think Bam Abayo is all the way back, but Goran Dragic is, um, you know, it's kind of a shame. And I don't know what his status is for tonight. I think he's not going to play. He's uh, not. Yeah. And they've, they've had him as questionable throughout, or doubtful, I should say, throughout, and I think he still is. But he's, you know, that, that injury can take a long time. So um, the, the the plantar fascia injury, and um, it's got, and, and again, I'm not privy to inside information. I don't know what his MRI showed. Um, the general just seems to be that it's a partial tear. And that injury is something that's probably well known to a lot of our audience Um uh, or something like it. So plantar fasciitis is a fairly common diagnosis. Um, this is a little, it's the same structure, but in a different place. So plantar fasciitis is one of the three causes of heel pain that we see. Uh, one of them being the Achilles tendon injury, which is in the back of the heel. Um, there's a thing called heel pain syndrome, which is in the bottom of the middle of the heel, which is not well understood actually. And then plantar fasciitis is sort of in the the bottom of the foot where the heel is um, sort of the front of the heel a little toward the inside. And that's where the plantar fascia attaches to the calcaneus or heel bone. Now, what he apparently has is a partial rupture of the plantar fascia itself. So so what is that and what is fascia? Um, there is a type of cell called uh, fibrous tissue. And fibrous tissue is used a lot in the musculoskeletal system for three kinds of structures primarily. Fibrous tissue makes up tendons and it makes up ligaments, which differ structurally um, somewhat, uh, but are similar. And then it makes up fascia. So fascia tissue looks a lot like ligament tissue. Um, and it's it's very uh, gritty and very strong. The plantar fascia runs along the bottom of the foot and connects more or less the heel to kind of where the ball of the foot is. And it supports the arch. So um, if you get damage to it. It's painful, number one. Um, it can cause structural problems. In his case, as best I can glean from what I've read, it appears to be a partial tear, not a complete tear. And, you know, complete tears can take months and months to come back from. Um, so partial tears, depending on how bad it is, at least has the potential to come back. But, um, you know, if you push it on a partial tear, you run the risk of making it into a complete tear, which is a far worse injury. Uh, decades ago, this was one of the injuries, like most of the other ones, that people used to inject with either cortisone or a painkiller. 
Um, and we were talking about the quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, I think, um, uh, who got the painkilling injection into his lungs. But um, this is something you would not want to inject. So just, a, you know, a few things that it's, I think that need to be more widely known than they are in treating these injuries. So, you know, you can, you can, you can numb it up with Novocaine, Lidocaine and go out there and play, but that's dangerous and nobody would ever do that because um, you could injure yourself worse. But the other question is, you know, what about cortisone? And cortisone has been used for decades, but less and less. And I'm a big, um, I, I, I don't use cortisone almost never in my practice because cortisone also has been shown, it's been shown that it's, uh, bad for the health of cartilage cells. It's also been shown it's bad for the health of tendons and can cause tendon ruptures. And so it, you know, it can contribute to um, plantar fascial ruptures too. So, I mean, the, the one question is, do you want to inject this? And the answer is no. The main thing that you want to do, which they are doing, is kind of leave it alone. Usually five patients with this, I use what we call protective, protected weight bearing, which means I tell them to take two crutches or if they're older, a walker and put some weight on it, but not a lot of weight. It turns out that structures like ligaments or fascia or tendons or bones um, have a window of stress that is optimal, both when they're healthy and when they're damaged. So if they're damaged and you put too much stress on them, you'll damage the works. And of course, you don't want to do that. But if you take all mechanical stress away, they don't heal as strongly as if they have some stress. So the optimal thing to do is to have them put a little mechanical stress on it, which actually stimulates healing, but not too much. How much is too much? Your body generally tells you because um, you get pain. So if you're putting, and I tell my patients, if you're putting, um, put some weight, take enough weight off that it doesn't hurt. And our bodies are very smart. And then, you know, if you do that, it heals optimally. Um, so they have him, I'm sure, taking some weight off. Um, you know, many people, and maybe they are, will use a boot um, to immobilize it. Um, I actually almost never do that because immobilization of joints um, is not good for them. Joints get their nutrition from motion because joints don't have a blood supply. So the motion of the joint causes increased diffusion of uh, fluid, joint fluid, and other uh, um, nutritional substances into the joint. So optimally in general, um, I like to put people on protected weight bearing, don't immobilize it. Um, I don't ever use painkilling or anti-inflammatory drugs. I don't know if they are with him. They used to be extremely common. We've talked about this before, but are being used less and less. Um, they actually interfere with healing. Now, the people that use them will say, yeah, they do, but not that much. Maybe. Um, they also mask pain. So if you have an injury like that, and I'm telling patients, we'll take enough weight off that it doesn't hurt, you can't really tell. Um, if you're taking a painkiller. And thirdly, these drugs, and I've talked about this before on this program, um, but I can't say it enough. These drugs are very toxic, high incidence of bleeding ulcers, kidney problems, liver problems, other problems. So, I mean, I think the best thing to do is protected weight bearing, probably not to immobilize it. Sometimes you can uh, let the patient um, feel it. Um, and then, you know, it'll, your body will tell you when it's better. Dr. Chad Pajomas, Sports Medicine Update, the weekly podcast, talking about plantar fasciitis. Question. Most Bulls fans are familiar with the injury because Joakim Noah uh, suffered this uh, unfortunate injury, and it, it really affected his playing time and, and, and his career. Um, 
I think the average person who may get out there on the court on the, on the weekend or, you know, the weekend warrior, uh, is wondering how do you prevent this from happening? Are there particular stretches that you should do or to, to be concerned with? Because again, many of us weren't really familiar with it. I think we've, we've probably heard the term in, in, in passing, but to actually, uh, know someone who's who's had it and 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 even maybe having it yourself how do you prevent this from happening and you shed a light on a, on a lot of things that uh uh you, you can't do regarding the healing process um but you talked about the boot is that an alternative if you cannot prevent yourself uh physically from from getting this injury you don't recommend the boot at all i, I don't and i'm Probably in a bit of a minority. Um, you see, part of the equation, if you're a physician treating patients, is what patients want, too. And patients that come to me with, as, as the National Hockey League says, lower body injuries, typically want two things. One, they want something to immobilize it, like a boot. And two, they want a pain pill. And, you know, in my opinion, the optimal treatment is kind of the opposite of that. Um, as I mentioned, immobilization causes atrophy of joints and cartilage uh, and it's really not good for the joint now can you tolerate it for a while you can but it's really not good for it um and tissue in every study of every tissue out there has been shown to heal better um if it moves now there's sometimes when you can't if you have a fracture with two bone ends well you can't allow much motion at the bone ends even there though um th you know, there's some questions but basically so in that case you have to immobilize it with a cast or a plate or something but um for most other structures, um, you know, a little motion is good. Now, what happens is people often don't like crutches and they don't like walkers. And um, so I, you know, I just spend time with my patients and say, look, if your goal is to get better as quickly as you can, just kind of bite the bullet and do this um, because it's, you know, it's the best thing for you. Um, and furthermore, if you wear a boot, it decreases the pain, but it doesn't eliminate it. And so it is, you know, if weight bearing, especially with something like the plantar fascia, so they may be using a, bo a boot and if they do, I think it's fine, but, but I don't. Um, and, you know, talking about Joakim Noah, I'd have to look back at old newspaper accounts. I believe he had plantar fasciitis and not a plantar fascial rupture and they're treated somewhat differently. And I also believe, um, so with, with regarding his treatment, um, he, um, uh, I was going to say that I, I, I have some particular knowledge of that case and I don't want to say things that I shouldn't, but, um, um, let me just say that among the ways that you can treat it, um, there's, for example, shockwave treatment. And I think he had that. I could be wrong. And that's something that, um, imparts basically sound waves to the area and it traumatizes the tissue a little more and inflames it in a way that stimulates a healing response. And I believe that's what got him better. Now that's something you can do for plantar where this fascia attaches to the heel. It's not something so much that's used for a plantar fascial rupture. I, I guess you could. Um, the other thing that's out there that, that we use commonly um, is a PRP, platelet-rich plasma. Um, injection, which I've talked about before. Also low-level laser treatment, which I mentioned before. So I've used low-level laser treatment for plantar fasciitis, and it helps, usually not dramatically, but uh, PRP can help um, very dramatically. So 
PRP is where you draw your blood, spin it down, isolate growth factors, and inject it. It's used very commonly in professional athletes. So it's your own tissue. You can't have a reaction to it. It has healing growth factors that help things heal and quiet inflammation. Now, it's probably not something you want to use in the acute setting, say, with Goran Dragic, where they're still hoping to get him back, because it works, but it takes anywhere for a week, for a month to work. So in his setting, maybe not so much. But, um, you know, if the season ends, say it ends tonight, and he's not playing, and I'm, I'm not saying they will, but PRP is a very reasonable uh, treatment to inject to facilitate healing. Actually, what works even better is stem cell treatment. Um, and we, as you know, we have a foundation, and we do a lot of work with stem cell um, treatment. But it's tricky because... Um, Concentrated stem cells is not something that the FDA will let you do in the United States there. Uh, but there are places offshore and elsewhere where it is freely done. And that's something that almost certainly would help this heal quicker. Now, you know, do you need to do it? Will it just heal on its own? It probably will. Um, I, I will tell you that if I were him and I had access to it, um, it's something that almost certainly would help it heal quicker. It's just that it's tough to gain access. Um, but so, so in general, the other things that we use, uh, PRP is used to stimulate healing and it's readily available and it's legal. Um, and I wouldn't, I don't know if they're going to do that, but it'd be a reasonable thing to try. Or they may think it's healing fine on its own. You know, let's leave it alone. You asked about stretching. So I will tell you, and I've kind of mentioned before that, um, I, I, there is literature where people stretch things that are damaged from hamstrings to plantar fascia to Achilles tendons. Um, and in my 30, I've been practicing for 35 years. And in my first couple of years of practice, I used to employ these for all those injuries. And my, you know, tennis elbow, all kinds of things. And they, they were called eccentric stretching, meaning you stretch it while the tendon is elongating. Anyway, um, my experience was that it did very little good and then it often aggravated the problem. So I haven't used it in forever. Um, and I've, I've come to believe, and I think it's kind of a logical thing too, that if you just leave the tissue alone to heal, you're better off. If you stretch it, you're taking damaged tissue and then imparting more stress. So I, you know, I certainly wouldn't fault the HEATS medical staff if they're doing that. It may be that a majority of doctors would. It's standard accepted treatment. But um, I have just had much better results when I when I don't use it. You mentioned preventing it. Um, you know, in the common setting, plantar fasciitis, we'll see it sometimes in people who have gained a little weight. Uh, we'll tell them to use cushioned shoes and whatnot. But in a conditioned athlete like him, uh, these guys just start to, um, you know, those tendon-like structures are under so much stress. And he's 34, I believe. Um, past the point, it's just wear and tear. And I don't think um, I, I don't think there's really anything you can do. It's just kind of the luck of the draw. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I know many people listening and or watching this podcast probably don't want to hear that and pray that they never get that injury. Um, but it's great information, uh, useful information, of course, that, uh, you provide, uh, not only myself, but everyone, uh, tuning in, uh, just in case they happen to unfortunately experience this, uh, it's painful injury. And, 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 and as you say, it's just a matter of just letting, so to speak, nature take its course and 
writing it out as far as the healing process? Yeah, I think so. And <coughs> general activity, mechanical stress that doesn't cause pain is beneficial to healing. So, you know, to get a person's heart rate up with that injury is kind of difficult because you're not, you're certainly not going to be able to run. We use ellipticals a lot, but you can't use an elliptical either. So a stationary bike is usually a mainstay. Um, you know, you can do things in water too. Um, we'll sometimes get people a vest in the deep end of a pool and let them churn their legs like they're running. Um, it's tough though. These guys are so well conditioned that to maintain that conditioning or anything close to it and get your heart rate up, it, you know, is is very very difficult. So, um, but but those are usually the um, you know the best ways. And you could, I mean, you could experiment with something like a rowing machine, I suppose. But again, one of the reasons I don't use any drugs is that your body will tell you if you're damaging it. So if you could use, for example, a rowing machine, um, probably a little better workout than a bike, depending on how hard you do it. Um, if you're not having pain, I think it'd be fine. If you are having pain, then you just shouldn't. So, Doc, let's transition. Well, we can stick with it, but I want to incorporate um, the other leagues regarding COVID-19 and the, the, the fight against the pandemic. We see that the NBA playing in the bubble down in Orlando, they've done a fabulous job. I mean, early on, they had a couple uh, hiccups or a bump in the road, but uh, the commissioner, Adam Silver, uh, you know, team general managers, owners, they all collectively... Uh, got together and say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And we're going to stay on top of this. And the cases have been, <laughs> the players have been protected, outstanding, phenomenal. And, and we're, we're about to crown an NBA champion for the 2020 season. Uh, are you surprised that we, we were able to get through this thing based on uh, being in this bubble? Uh, your thoughts on that? And, the National Football League, we've seen that cases, we're fortunate, in my opinion, to have finally uh, gotten to week five. Uh, but, of course, you know, there are some issues. There are some uh, uh, some some teams that have, uh, the Tennessee Titans, that have tested positive for the coronavirus. And the uh, league officials, the commissioner, they're like, we're not going to tolerate this. You have to abide by the protocol or else there's going to be drastic drastic ramifications your thoughts on the nba bubble and what in particular the national football league can do to learn from what the nba has done now keep in mind i think it's almost virtually impossible for the nfl to try to uh come up with a bubble so to speak because of the number of people and uh, the amount of money it'll cost to to even try to house this thing but your thoughts on the nba and how they've handled it and what the nfl can learn from it well you know as i mentioned before here first of all i think the leagues have done a great job responsible conscientious can't say enough good things about all of them um but i think that they're in a no lose situation um i i think the only way they could lose is if they panic and season and the reason as i mentioned before is that the consequences of getting the virus in that population um, are almost always not significant. So the thing is, if you have to postpone a game or cancel a game, it's bad for scheduling. But, you know, having um, 
more and more athletes gradually get the disease, um, you can make an argument is kind of a good thing because it'll decrease contagion. And, you know, I've mentioned before that football players, some of them were kind of heavy, um, are maybe a little more risk than others. Um, but so far, there haven't been issues, and I don't think there are going to be issues. So I think they just need to persevere and have flexibility. They have to postpone a game, postpone it. So I think it's good if you're going to get positivity, particularly when they're not contacting other high-risk people, the real problem um, might not be a bad thing as long as everybody doesn't get it all at once. So I, I think they're in a no-lose situation as long as they continue to do what they have done, which is flexible. Uh, if you have to postpone a game, postpone a game. And, you know, the other nuance that's added to this, um, in addition to the fact that the, uh, you know, the mortality rate um, uh, is less, I mean, it's a less severe illness for young people. It's a more severe illness for people over 70 than the flu. Um, uh, so, you know, the, what's a buzzword that's out there now in this whole field is focused protection, you know, protect the elderly. But the other thing, so, and, you know, vaccines are soon to be here, I think, but the treatment front, there are so many, um, there are so many treatments that are, that are on the rise. And, you know, just in the news as we speak, um, President Trump, I think everybody knows, um, was tested positive, and he was treated um, with um, antibodies, synthesized antibodies from a company called Regeneron. I think people, probably most everybody knows this whole story. So he was given that, he was given remdesivir, um, and uh, his recovery is pretty remarkable. You know, he had very little downtime. He had steroids for one day, uh, when his lungs were bad, but he's he's back. He's feeling good. Um, he's going to be back out in the open. He's already making his own antibodies. And he has said, um, and, you know, as is his style to, th this drug is experimental, but he said, I want it. And he said it works and it's been tested. It's clearly safe. And so they had antibodies from a company called Regeneron. Um, I think Lily has one something like it, which directly attacks the virus. And he has said he wants it to be available to everybody free. The supply chain issue, which is actually a big part of the COVID process that no time to get into here. But the reason I bring it up is that there are so many fronts where things are looking good. So if you, you know, um, you know, there was that one football player who I mentioned. Um, he was a Division II player. I can't think of his name. May he rest in peace. He was listed at 6'3 and 350, roughly, and he, and he passed away. I don't know anything about the rest of the story. But as I've mentioned to you, you know, being heavy is a risk factor, and being heavy predisposes to other risk factors. Eddie Goldman, for example, from what I read in the paper. Fabulous player, big guy, um, well over 300 pounds. They also said had asthma, and I believe that's one of the reasons that he isn't playing. And he had a designation the NFL has for people that have multiple risk factors. Anyway, so my point is, I think it would be, I'd be very surprised if anybody in the NBA got real sick from this because they're all lean. I mean, things can happen, of course, but it would be very unusual. In the NFL, it would still be unusual, but there's probably a greater chance. And so the thing is, my point is, 
that even in treatment, you know, there's there's um, kind of a lesson plasma too, which looks like it um, uh, works well. Um, and so um, uh, what I'm saying is that the treatment, what's happened, it's unfortunate that he became ill, but I think it has served a huge purpose um, in making these antibodies in a situation where they're likely to be available. So again, I think the prolegs are doing everything right. I think the chance of bad things happening are small. And here, everybody talks about the vaccine, but here on the treatment front as well, there's just all these advances so that, that you know, just persevering is just the right thing to do because chances are things are going to work out well. So you think we'll get past this flu season? Uh, just some people say that's already here. And of course, we'll make it through the winter and the hopes and the possibility to get it back to some sort of normalcy uh, by early spring of next year. I think we should be back to normalcy now. And, you know, there, there's a lot more to this, too, even on the reporting. And there are reports in the news. It's actually very well known. The head, uh, Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC, was just talking about this, that, as you may know, um, hospitals get significantly greater reimbursement if uh, COVID is put as, for example, a cause of death. I think it's a couple thousand dollars. I'm not sure the numbers, but it's significant. And so, you know, there's this distinction of dying because of COVID or with COVID. You know, 20% of the females in the New York hospital um, that had COVID were pregnant. So you wonder, you know, how many of those people were admitted because they were pregnant and happened to have COVID. The reason I say this is that there are there are powerful economic forces um, uh, toward maximizing the reporting. I mean, it's not a black and white thing reporting. And there, there are other things in this regard. Lots of thousands of people that have died with it. an accident. Um, you know, being listed as well as COVID. So what I'm saying is, um, I think that, you know, for the general population, um, that it's overstated as is the cases where it's causing serious problems. Um, <clears throat> and I think for older people and old sick people, it's very serious. And that's why, which Europe is doing too, we should really focus our attention there. But as um, to the flu season, um, uh, and there's even some talk that, you know, flu vaccines may give cross immunogenicity. So, yeah, I think for the things that matter, you know, for people getting back to school and getting back to work, um, people should be back now. They should socially distance. Um, I think they should wear masks, although it's interesting in Sweden, they're not and they're doing better than other countries. So I, you know, I don't, there, there's lots of data that shows that masks don't help, but I, I wear one, I think we should, I think it's prudent. Um, and, and you know, the, the number of reports, and this probably isn't the venue to get into it, but the number of reports of increased mortality from cancer, from suicide, from drug overdoses is huge. These are consequences of the lack of normalcy. So I think it's extremely dangerous if we don't get back to normal while being maniacal about protecting the old and the those with comorbidities. Very well said, Dr. Chaffajomis. And of course, we can continue to uh, dive deep into this uh, topic of conversation with the pandemic uh, definitely looming over our heads. And I want to make a, a correction. I think last week on the podcast, I said there were numbers uh, going up. Uh, in, in the state of Florida, and it was actually uh, in Wisconsin. 
our, our brothers up to the north of us. And we can see that over this past week, those numbers are continuing to uh, to elevate. And the state of Illinois, well, the, the city of Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is looking to uh, have people self-quarantine themselves if they come across the border. Um, but I do want to make that uh, clear that the state of Wisconsin, with the numbers that uh, were rising, uh, close to, if not already, a double digits as far as cases in that Although, state. Good, good point. Thanks for the correction. Although cases are not the relevant um, statistic, what matters is hospitalizations. Um, and hospitalizations are really well under control. It's a different population that's getting it. Younger people are getting it more, and and they you know they don't get sick very very much. Dr. Chaff Perdomo, it's always a pleasure. If anyone needs more information, they want to find out uh, more about sports medicine regarding whatever injuries they may uh, uh, happen to, to, to get. We don't want anyone to get injured while they're out there playing golf because the weather is beautiful. Tennis, basketball, rollerblading, bicycling. But if anyone happens to get some sort of injury, how do they get a hold of Dr. Chaff Perdomo? So our phone number is 847-699-6810. We've got a, a great staff and, you'll, and a live human being will pick up the phone, not a phone bank. Um, and you can email us at ortho, like orthopedics, just O-R-T-H-O, ortho at I-S-M-O-C. That's Illinois Sports Medicine Orthopedic Center. So ortho at ismoc.net. I love that you have live individuals answering the phones when they call your number. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's the, you know, even as a physician, and I don't, patients probably don't realize this, but as a physician, doctor-to-doctor -doctor communication is important, and the proliferation of phone banks by big institutionalized medicine has, has really made that challenging. It's, it's, it's very frustrating. Well, you've made it easy for a lot of people who want to get in contact with you. Dr. Chaffer-Joma, thank you so very much. Always a pleasure learning, being educated, and being inspired to stay healthy and get out there and take advantage of the beautiful weather and keep fit. There's no question about it. But be safe. Wear the mask, wash your hands, practice social distancing. Dr. Chaffer-Joma, the Sports Medicine Update, the weekly podcast. Have a good one. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much, Jerry. You too.